The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Remain standing, if you would, please, and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Several weeks ago, when we began the study of Matthew 24, I talked about the importance of studying the end times. And at that time, we went through some of the predictions that have been made about Christ's return. Prior to the end of the first millennium, uh, that would be the year 1000, there was a flurry of predictions that the timing was right for Christ to come. And then over the next few hundred years, there were many that thought that they had hit on a formula that would tell them, by looking at Scripture and figuring out different things, they thought they had hit on a formula that would tell them the exact time that Christ would come again. In the 19th century, there were groups like the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah Witnesses who built a whole theology around the second coming of Christ, and that's where they got their start, predicting the time that Christ would come. And then I'm not going to go into the details again, but the latest fiasco that all of you know about is Harold Camping from right here in the Bay Area, who uh, predicted that the Lord would come on May 21st, 2011. And so predictions have constantly been made for 2,000 years, and predictably, none is better than the last. So they all reason that Christ is going to come but all of their uh, at a particular time but all their reasoning is bogus because of one verse of scripture that we read in the Bible here in Matthew chapter 24. So we don't really have to search the scripture for clues to find out when Christ is going to come because the text today tells us that the second coming of Christ is a secret that is known only to God. Now if you look in Matthew 24 verse number 36 But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall be the coming of the, so shall also the summit coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today, and we just ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts to the message that we may clearly understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The secrecy about the timing of the Lord's return has not stopped all of the speculation that people have about it. When I stand at the door after services on Sunday morning, I'm asked a lot of questions, I hear a lot of comments. And uh, let me just say this, uh, if you speak to me at the door and sometimes I seem that I'm inattentive, I'm not really inattentive, it's just that there's so much uh, traffic of people going in and out, it's hard for me to carry on an extended conversation there. 
But uh, most of you know that I, I'm the last person to leave the church. Usually I am. And so if you need some more conversation, I would be happy to talk to you uh, a little bit later after everyone has gone out. But I suppose that, that one of the most frequent questions that I'm asked, just standing there at the door, I mean, it, it seems like almost a weekly occurrence, that people will ask me, do you believe that this event or that event indicates that the Lord is coming soon? And those questions are, are even more frequent when, whenever the Pope does something. When, when the Pope does his latest ecumenical thing, people will say, well, do you think that's a sign of the one world church? And do you believe that that means that Christ is about to come back now? Well, if I recall Roman Catholic claims, uh, they, they say that there have been about 200 popes over the past 1,500 years and every one of those popes have been antichrist, so to talk about the pope being a predictor of the coming of Christ is really not uh, all that assuring. So my answer when people talk to me about these things is going to be as always, I'll smile and I'll listen to your comments, I'll sympathize with your feelings, but quite honestly, there is nothing that makes me a better predictor of the second coming of Christ than the Seventh-day Adventists or the Jehovah Witnesses or anyone else. And that's because the scriptures tell us that we don't know when Christ is going to come. And look, in fact, in looking back at church history and things that have happened in the past, sometimes things that happen in the past, and maybe many times, the indicators of the past are greater than the indicators that we have today, if that's what you're looking for. Now, in this chapter, in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples were intent to know when was Jesus going to bring his kingdom. And they weren't at all sure of anything like the second coming. They hadn't been taught about that. They didn't understand that. They thought that Christ had come to begin his kingdom right then. But nevertheless, there was this great curiosity and there was this hope in their hearts that there would be a kingdom of righteousness and Christ would come to this earth and it would be a time when all of their troubles would end. And we shouldn't wonder about that because as Christians today, we have the very same hope in our hearts. We have that same belief. Ever since Christ said these words, we've all been hoping that Christ will come back, and that has become the expectation of nearly the entire creation. Now, if you would, I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8, and here the Apostle Paul talks about the second coming, and he, he's in the midst of discussing with Christians, I'm sure that they were... They were troubled, they were persecuted, they had things on their mind, and there were all kinds of things that they were going through. And they were looking for the time when Christ would come back, and Paul talks to them about the lifting of the curse when Christ comes. And in, in Romans chapter 8, in verse number 18, he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now, I would confess with you, along with most commentators, that 
Verse number 19 in this scripture is one of the most difficult verses there is to get a handle on. Paul said, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. And the question is, what does Paul mean there by the creature? Is he talking about, as he had before, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, that these are the creatures who need to hear the gospel of Christ, and it's these creatures, Jews and Gentiles, that are waiting for the coming of Christ? Or is he more extensive in that? Is, is he talking about the whole creation itself? Is he speaking about the beast of the earth, that they are also waiting for the curse to be lifted from this earth? If it's the former, then we can very well understand why almost every person that you meet has a curiosity about the end of the world. People want to know, when is all of this going to end? And if he's talking about the other, if he's talking about the beast of the earth, that they're also waiting for the lifting of the curse, then we do understand this as well. That God says that that curse will be lifted at the second coming of Christ. When Christ begins his kingdom, all the hostility and the predation of the animal kingdom is going to cease. But in either case, we do know this, that as God's people, we want the curse to be lifted. All of us want to be like Christ. We want to be free from the bondage of sin. We want to be able to live like Christ because that's what happens to us when the Holy Spirit comes to live in our heart. We have a desire to be like him, to end the sin that's in our life. We don't want to live that in, in that way anymore. And so we groan in the misery of sin. The Holy Spirit encourages us with this consciousness of sin. It's grievous to us because we are not like Christ. Like Christ is what we want to be. We want to have a body that's changed. We're waiting for the redemption of this body so that it will be like him. Now, as we look at this text today, I want to remind you of some things about the second coming. And I don't think that you really find anything profound here. I don't have a unique approach to these scriptures, so I probably won't tell you anything that you haven't heard before. But if there is anything profound in this, it would be the realization of our expectation is going to be far beyond anything that we ever imagined. We are simply incapable of understanding the magnitude of the second coming of Christ. Now, let me point out first to you today the certainty of his coming. The vol voluminous statements that we, that we have in the Old Testament prophecies will leave no doubt as to the certainty of Christ's return. As you read the Old Testament, there is this air of expectancy. The prophets talk about this, and they're looking for that time when the Messiah would come, when the king would come, and there was this feeling of tremendous hope that all the things that Israel was going through, that that would be ended, and that God would establish this great, glorious kingdom upon the earth. And if we were to suddenly erase the frequency of all of these prophecies that we have in the Old Testament, that would just leave a gaping hole in the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament would be nearly blank. And there would be no consolation for Israel. There would be no hope there for the rest of the world. All hope would be erased because the world would come to nothing other than a horrifying end. And so I would never ask you on a Sunday morning to bring your Bible with you and to open your Bible and it's read the Bible because the only thing that you would find in the Scriptures is doom and gloom. If Christ is not coming back, then the world comes to a horrible end. And then 
We have these oft-repeated statements of Christ himself in the Scriptures that lend this air of certainty to his return. And one of those dearest promises is the one that I read to you last week from John chapter 14, where Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I suppose that's the most often used scripture when I preach the funeral of a Christian. And if that expectation is not true, then Jesus played the cruelest of tricks on his disciples. These were men that were filled with hope. They really did believe that he was the Messiah. He was the promised one that would come. And if he should not return for them, then he was the worst of imposters and just an outright liar. Now, we can look throughout scriptures to try to find all these promises of the coming of Christ. But we really don't have to comb the New Testament for them because right here in the scripture that we have today, in the verse just previous to our reading, in verse number 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And the promise that he's referring to that that his word is not going to pass away is about his second coming. That he's told the truth about it. He is coming back. Heaven and earth may pass, but his words are not going to pass away. And I don't know if you caught this when we read that, when we read that verse last week, but if Jesus is not the eternal God, then that is one of the most outlandish, wildest statements that Jesus ever made. That if he was just a man, if he's just a man that pitted himself, uh, the certainty of his words against heaven and earth, then we would surely say, here is a man that is a raving lunatic. Well, I like to point out these kinds of scriptures from time to time because the Bible has so many ways of declaring that Jesus is God. So many people say, well, you can't find that in the Bible. Where does it say that Jesus is God? He never said that he was God. Well, the Bible has so many ways of declaring it. You, you, you have to have a notebook when you open the Gospels and just take notes on this because Jesus Christ is constantly declaring himself to be the Almighty God. And he says here that his words are the truest words that have ever been spoken. And when he speaks, we must listen because the words that he speaks or he spoke are forever recorded in heaven. And did you know that your response to those words is also recorded, you are going to be judged for the way that you listened and you heeded the words that Jesus spoke. And so this is a very profound statement, especially when you consider it with the very next sentence that came from his mouth. He said, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, we just talked about the certainty of his coming. I want you to look secondly today at the uncertainty of his coming. And the uncertainty of it is not that he won't come. We know that by verse number 35. That's an indication of the promise that the kingdom can never fail, that whatever he says is going to happen. If he says it will happen, it will happen. And there's absolute truth in every word that he spoke. And yet, despite that high expectation that Jesus gives us here in this 24th chapter, there are still many people who say that Jesus spoke out of turn. 
that what he was predicting here was his return within the next 40 years. But he was mistaken about it. He didn't know. Uh, he didn't understand. He, he spoke beyond his ability And that's according to verse number 36. He says, I don't know the hour. And so he was predicting his return, but he spoke out of turn. He wasn't right about it. And so now we're left arguing for these past 2,000 years. Is he going to come back? And so people take verse number 36 and they say that's his way out. He misspoke. He just didn't know. It was his best guess. But then he said, only the Father knows about this. Now in Mark 12 or 13, 32... Mark records explicitly, I mean, he gives us a little bit further detail about what Jesus said on this occasion. And Mark says explicitly in his recording of it that Jesus said, I don't know. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And some wonder, why Why didn't Matthew say it that clearly? Why didn't he record it the same way? According to Matthew, he said, Uh, Only my Father knows. But the outcome is exactly the same. If only the Father knows, then Jesus did not know. And so we're left with a dilemma here. A dilemma of comparing the certainty of verse number 35 with with the uncertainty of verse number 36. How is it that we have an authoritative God on one hand who knows all truth and speaks all truth... And then we have the uncertainty of one who claims to be God, and yet he is ignorant of something. He's ignorant of the timing of his own return. How does that work? Well, I heard something interesting on this subject the other day. I was listening to R.C. Sproul, who said that the omniscience of Christ is not really the big question in this case. That the real issue here is his sinlessness. If Jesus spoke an untruth, or if Jesus gave a guess, then he was misleading the disciples. And so the first issue that's raised here that we have to look at is, did Jesus sin? Did he commit a sin? And we know that if he sinned, he could not be the Almighty God. Now, do you remember what Jesus said in John 14, 10? He said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. So the words that Jesus spoke, he said, These are my Father's words. I speak what the Father tells me to say. And so if any time that Jesus was wrong then the Father must be also wrong, or at least the Father induced him to say things that weren't true. He said, every word that I speak is given by the Father. So in one way or the other, we impugn the character of Christ, or the character of the Father, or both, by saying that what's meant in Matthew 24 is that Jesus predicted that he would come in A.D. 70. Now you see, we we start to weave a very tangled web when you look at Matthew 24 as being the return of Christ in AD 70, and there are people who say that there was a spiritual return of Jesus in AD 70, and this is what it's talking about. And that's a problem to us. And it's a problem if you come across anything that, that God doesn't know. One of the chief attributes of God is that he is omniscient. He knows everything. So how is it that Jesus could be God and he didn't know this? Well, I think it's also difficult for us to understand why the angels don't know. 
Michael and Gabriel, who are the, the great messengers of God. They're constantly before the throne of God. They're receiving instructions from him all of the time. Michael is the one who will command the angels, the angelic armies, in the return of Christ. How is it that he doesn't know? Isn't this information that he should have? But Jesus said, they don't know it, the angels don't know it, and I don't know it. So how do we reconcile that? How are we going to have him as God on one hand and then him not know something, this thing, especially the timing of his return. Well, the way that we reconcile it is that we have to look at this great mysterious doctrine of the faith that theologians call the hypostatic union. That there are two natures in Christ. That Jesus Christ is both human and divine. And he was fully divine, the scriptures say. He was 100% God because in the book of Colossians it says, in him dwelleth all the fullness of Godhead bodily. So in the flesh, in his body, he has all the fullness of God. And in that divine nature of Jesus Christ, everything was known to him. He has to know all things. He has to know things at all times because the scripture also says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He has everything under his control. Everything consists by that divine power. And so there's nothing that can escape his attention. And so at any time, should Jesus cease to be God, then the whole universe collapses into oblivion. Jesus always existed as God. He is eternal. There is no time when he could not have been God. But Jesus did not always exist as man. His human nature had a beginning. And that happened at the incarnation when he was born of the Virgin Mary. And that human nature received by Christ had certain limitations. That instead of being the tireless God, he experienced the weariness of man. Instead of being the God who said, I don't need anything from you. He's the man who sent his disciples to buy food, to buy bread, and ask a woman at the well to give him a drink from her pitcher of water. As God, he could answer prayer, but here we have the man who spent hours to his heavenly Father in prayer. And there we see the humanity of Jesus. And this is just a remarkable thing, a marvelous thing, that in, in his humanity, by an act of divine power, because he was God, he could limit the divine attributes that he used in the flesh. Now, I, quite frankly, can't explain that to you. I don't know how to explain that to you because there isn't anything that compares to it. It's like when we get on the doctrine of the Trinity. And I have so many people explain to me fully and so I can completely understand. Tell me about the Trinity. And I'll tell you, I can't tell you about the Trinity. I don't know how to explain that to you because there's nothing in the world that compares to it. But I will tell you this, the Bible teaches it. And because the Bible teaches it, I believe it without understanding it. Someday, maybe I will understand it. I don't have to know that now. I just believe what the Bible says. And it's the same thing with this hypostatic union. Christ, 100% man, 100% God. I cannot explain that to you. It's never occurred before. It's never going to occur again. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. 
But sometimes I wonder about that. And I wonder, well, since he was also God, and he did have that divine nature, then why didn't Jesus just reach over inside of the divine nature? And why didn't he just say, here's the information that I need? And I'm going to pull that over into my human nature, and then I'll know, and I can tell you when I'm going to come again. But then I realize that it wasn't the Father's will to give that information to Jesus Christ, the man. It wasn't his will to reveal that information to him. And so Jesus would never ask for it. He never asked the Father, could you please let me in on this? I'm kind of looking like a fool here, don't you think, that I don't know this? No, he never even asked this question because it was not the Father's will. Now, as one person said, Jesus was not ignorant of anything that he ought to know. So Jesus did not need the information at that particular time, and it's apparent that neither do we need this information at this particular time. And so it doesn't make any sense for anyone to go into the Scriptures and try to dig out something out of the Scriptures or try to find some kind of a hidden clue about when Jesus is going to come back because Jesus himself wouldn't do that. Why the imperfect, why an imperfect human being would never do that, and yet we have the, the, or the imperfect human beings that we are, why we would do that when you have the perfect human being that never tried it, it doesn't make sense. We, he didn't look for that information, so neither do we need to bother to ask for that information. Now, there's a very practical reason why we shouldn't know when Christ will come again. And the reason is it would be very dangerous to our faithfulness. It would be dangerous to our obedience. If we knew when Christ was going to come again, we would put things off. There would never be any urgency to our service. I mean, how, how effective would it be for me to come to the end of the service today after the preaching of the sermon, and I were to say to you, today is the day of salvation. You need to be saved today. Trust Christ as your Savior today. And you say to me, why? Why do I need to trust Jesus today? And I said, because Jesus is coming on August the 10th, 2023. And you would say, well, I think that I'll wait till sometime in 2022. And then I'll get real concerned about that. And I'll start changing my life. I'll start doing things differently. No, God knows exactly what you would do. And so he keeps that information from us. And this is why you get the example here of Noah in verses 37 through 39. There it accentuates the urgency that Christ could come right now. And if you know things that you shouldn't know, then you will conclude things that you shouldn't conclude. God wants you to know he can come at any time, and he knows that when he keeps this information from you, that you will be spurred to greater obedience by the lack of the knowledge. Now, you can see how Peter used that, that very formula or that plan in Second Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. There he said, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be? in all holy conversation and godliness. That was written 20 centuries ago. He said, the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. Thieves don't publish their itinerary. But it's very unlikely that you're going to get an email from a thief asking you for a time window when it would be convenient for him to visit your house. 
Oh, thieves are not the cable guy. Thieves are interested in windows for other reasons. So a thief shows up unexpectedly, and because Peter says this is the way it is with the Lord's coming, he says in verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And so every generation for 20 centuries has read that, and God's people have been moved to holiness and to sobriety and to witnessing and to consecration for this very reason. We just don't know. We don't know when he's coming back. We don't know when it's going to happen. And as John said, we don't want to be ashamed at his appearing. And so we live every single day as if today could be the day. Now let's go a little bit further. Number three is the confusion of his coming. Now, I find this to be a, a most remarkable part of this narrative in Matthew 24, that when we, when we read this and we study it, most often people will take this and they'll refer it to the suddenness of the rapture. Now, the rapture for sure is going to be sudden, but as we've noted many times as we've looked at the text, that Jesus never actually mentioned the rapture in, in Matthew 24. He said in verse number 29 immediately after the tribulation. And so what we're looking here is at a time when the rapture has come and gone. This is, this is suddenness, but how could there be suddenness, and how could it be that people are not watching? Seven years of tribulation follow the rapture, and, and all that trouble that the world experiences, wouldn't you think that that is a pretty good indication that people will not only expect his coming, but they'll beg for him to come? But Jesus said, no, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and every day he was out there preaching, and he was building a boat. And he told them that one day there's going to be a great deluge, and uh, if they didn't repent of their sins, then, and if they didn't turn to God, then they're going to be swept away in the destruction. But as Noah preached, they partied on. And they lived every day, just like it was another day. They expected that tomorrow would be just like today, you know. Same old, same old. Same old, same old. Same story, different day. Noah preached, but nobody listened. And verse number 39 says they didn't know about the flood coming, even though Noah preached about it until the flood came, and then they all drowned. And the word flood there in this text is interesting. That's the Greek word kataklusmos. And it means cataclysm, the great deluge, the great cataclysm of the flood. And Jesus said it will be just like that when he returns. But he's not talking about the rapture here. But he's telling us that things will be the same when he comes in that second coming after seven years of tribulation. People are still not going to be aware that God's going to end this world. Now, take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I, I alluded to this just a moment ago. We read a part of 2 Peter 3. And let's look here at uh, 2 Peter 3 and verse number 3. And what we have described for us is the very same time that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 24. In 2 Peter 3 and verse number 3, it says, Knowing this verse, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. 
For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, these are people that have missed the rapture. These are people living in the tribulation. They have missed the rapture. We can compare that back to Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus said immediately after the, tribula uh, after the tribulation. So he's talking about his coming at the end of the tribulation. And this is what these people are doing up until that time. Now, basically, what they're saying here is that the world is not going to end. They scoff at this. Even though they see everything that's going around them, they scoff at that. And they say, you Christians, you have been preaching doom and gloom, and you've been preaching hellfire and damnation for years, and nothing happens. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And then at that point, Peter gives them a science lesson. And he takes them back to Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. And he says that God formed the earth, and God divided the firmament. And he put the subterranean aquifers in place. And he divided that from the clouds that are in the heavens. And he stored above the earth and beneath the earth his weapon of mass destruction. And that was the flood. And when God decided to cut it all loose, the world was destroyed by water. Now in verse number 7 he says that God is storing up again. The heavens and the earth are being held by God until such time as he's going to release not fire or not water upon the earth, but fire. And that's going to be what? Cataclysmic. The people in that time are going to get a taste of it. They're in the tribulation. They're going to see things happening around them. Meteors crashing into the earth. The sun and the moon darken. The stars are shut out. Earthquakes and volcanoes. All of that happens, it's going on around them, so how will they not look for the coming of Christ? I mean, it's all right here. We've got a book here that's just like a road map to the apocalypse. And it tells us exactly what's going to happen, just verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It says, this is going to happen, so why are they going to be surprised when Christ comes? Well, first, I have to remind you of the deceiver. The deceiver is Satan. For 3,500 years, Satan has been able to read the Bible too. I mean, I wonder, how many times has Satan read Revelation chapter 20? And there it talks about how he's going to be cast into the lake and fire and brimstone. How many times has he read that, and yet Satan believes that in the end, he's going to win this thing? How does he believe that? Well, he's a deceiver, and the person he's deceived the most is himself. He's self-deceived. So the deceiver, that's the first problem. Now the second problem, though, is the magnitude of the deception. Now you remember the comparison in verse number 24? For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now remember when we taught on that, that the main point here is not the elect. The main point is the magnitude of the deception. It is impossible to deceive the elect. But it is entirely possible to deceive every other person on the planet. And that's exactly what takes place in the tribulation. Despite everything that happens around them right before their eyes, they are not going to expect the return of Christ. And you say, can you prove that? Can you show me that? I can. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. Let's turn to Revelation 
And we'll see how the Bible describes all of this. All of this happens during the tribulation and the scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? Revelation, let's look at chapter 6. And uh, we'll pick up just a, a part here of the opening of the seven seals. And if you've been with us for a while, you remember that the seven seals are the birth pains that are the beginning of sorrows described in Matthew 24, verse number 8. So here we have, we're, we're breaking in here to the opening of the seals. And in Revelation 6, verse number 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs. That's last week's message, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Now, right there we've established they're very much aware of what's happening on around them. They know that the great day of the Lord, that's some, that, 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 that God's doing something. And so what do you expect should follow verse number 17? After all these things that, that's happened here, what should follow verse number 17? Shouldn't it be repentance? Shouldn't they say, well, Lord, now we understand what you had in mind. Now we understand what's going to happen, so save us. We know that you're right, Lord. Save us. But there's not a word of repentance. Go over to chapter 8, and there begins what is called the trumpet judgments. And we'll look here, and you can just peruse this as I go through. Chapter 8, verse number 7, it says there's hail and fire and blood. One-third of all the trees are burned up. In verse number 8, there's a mountain of fire that's cast into the sea, and that results in the sea turning to blood, and one-third of the marine life dies, and one-third of all the ships that are in the sea are destroyed. In verse number 10, it says that fresh water becomes bitter. In verse number 12, the sun and the moon and the stars are shut out. And then chapter 9 begins with demons like locusts and scorpions that sting people and make them hurt so much they want to die. And then starting in verse number 13, there are more demons, 200 million of them that spew fire from their mouths like flamethrowers, and they have tails that sting and heads that bite. Now let's pick it up at chapter 9, verse number 19. For their power is in their mouth. It's talking about these demons. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were likened to serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, listen, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Now go to chapter 16. Revelation 16, verse number 8. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And 
they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, do you know what happens after the last of all of this starts to crumble? Do they look to the Lord? After being through all of this, do they look to the Lord? No. They look to their wicked empire that God is about to destroy, and here is their reaction. This is in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. And cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. Now, do you get the picture here? There is no repentance. There is nobody that turns. None of them believe that God is going to destroy the whole earth. And so when he comes, it catches them by surprise. By surprise. You see how depraved the heart of man is? These kinds of things, I want you to understand this very clearly. These kinds of things do not cause people to believe. You cannot scare people into believing in Jesus Christ. The heart is not made for that. Your wicked heart is not made to know who Jesus is. You don't have a receptor to understand who Jesus is. The only way that you could ever come to Jesus Christ and understand who he is is that the Holy Spirit begins a work of regeneration in your heart. You'll never understand it until then. And what we're looking at here is men who've seen all of these things. They ought to have every incentive that there could possibly be in their own will to turn to God and say, don't let it happen to me, but they don't. And they don't because they don't have the capacity. If God is not working in the heart, you cannot change. And you know why? Because salvation is all of the Lord. He doesn't permit you to have any glory for any of it. He's the one who changes you. So these are not the kinds of things that, that move people to believe in God. Now, before it ever started to rain, Noah, you remember, gathered thousands of animals into the ark. And Noah didn't actually have to go get them. There was this strange movement, and at the very right time, all of the animals started to stream towards the ark. Now, what must people have thought when they were out there plowing in the field... And two animals, a male and a female, come walking down beside their field on the way to the ark. Why, look, Fred, there goes two giraffes, male and a female. Hmm. And there's two crocodiles that are right behind them. And look, there's two purple people eaters, and they're on their way to the ark as well. Of course, those became extinct after they got off. But, but, they're, but they're on the ark, uh, on the way to the ark, and Fred just sort of shrugs his shoulders, and he doesn't think there's anything peculiar about that at all. I mean, his bull and his cow leave his field and walk towards the ark to get on. And they're saying, well, that's, you know, that's normal. That things like that happen, don't they? What are they thinking? They had no clue at all. Not until the rain started and the door and the ark was shut. They have all this happening in front of them, and they still don't believe that God's going to destroy the world with a flood. Jesus said, that's just the way it will be in the tribulation. People will have no clue. And then God rains down fire and, 
everything is burned up. Now go back to Matthew chapter 24 and verses 40 and 41. Matthew 24 verse 40, it says, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Now as I said a moment ago when we first looked at this, that you often hear this preached about the rapture. And I'm not going to have a huge contention with somebody who, who wants to put that in. Here, as a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, as, we're go- as we look at it, we're going to conclude some things about the rapture as well. But really, the context here is not about the rapture, and I'll show you in that just a minute. But what happens here is this is different. The rapture is different from this, because in the rapture, the good one is taken away, and the bad one is left. This is at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming, and just the opposite happens. The bad one is taken away, and the good one is left. Now, let me explain that to you. The bad one is taken away because what this scripture is talking about is judgment. The final act is judgment. And those who have denied Christ and mocked God and who would not repent are whisked away to judgment. Now, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 49 and 50. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So it's talking about judgment. Now, the angels that didn't know the time of Christ's return, they now know. They've received the command from God and they are going to sever the wicked from the just. And so the wicked person is whisked away to judgment and the other person is left. And you say, well, why is he left? Well, this is the man or the woman that received Christ. This is the one that heard the witness of the 144,000 in the tribulation time that were sent with the commission of the gospel of Christ and they have believed that. So the one that is left is not sent away into punishment, but he is left to do what? to go into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. These are the ones who believed in Christ and they will enter into his glorious kingdom. So they're left to go into the kingdom. So now the secret's out. It's not a secret anymore. Not only does God know, but now so does every angel in heaven, so does every demon in hell, so does every person on this planet. Jesus is coming. And so what should you do? Well, fourthly, the command in his coming. What should you do? Very quickly, be vigilant. Expect him to return because he said that he would. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. What do you do? Live for Christ. If you truly believe that Christ will come at any moment, it will stop you from doing some of the nasty things that you do. Peter said that you will live holy and godly. John said that you will not be ashamed at his appearing. Paul said to look for the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when we come back to this text next time, we're going to talk more about readiness. But right now, let me say this. Anyone who is not saved, don't let the warnings go by. Don't expect that tomorrow will be just like today. Because if you continually convince yourself of that, if you convince yourself that Jesus is not coming back, then you will continue to follow the deceiver day after day. 
And Satan will keep you blind to this, and you will follow him right into hell. And so what must you do? Fall before the Lord and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And perhaps God will remove those scales from your eyes. And when he does, then you'll be able to see how glorious that Jesus is in all of his majesty. Would he do that for you? Well, I know that he will. Romans 10:13 says, For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what you need to do today. Call on the name of the Lord. And you'll never have to worry about, am I going to be surprised when Jesus comes? Because once you trust him, there's no surprise. You'll hear the trumpet and you'll go up to meet him in the air. No surprise at all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for the great text that we have. And Lord, uh, really a simple message, not hard to understand. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has made this great promise to us that he has not left us alone. He hasn't forgotten about us. He is coming back. And we live in that hope every single day of our lives. We look for your blessed return. Lord, I pray that you lay it upon the heart of some sinner today who hasn't realized that they need to trust you, that this could happen at any time or death could happen to them at any time. I just ask you, Lord, open their hearts to the gospel of Christ. Only you can do that. And then for Christians, may we just take the message today and be reminded again that you are coming. And because you are coming, we ought to live every single day in that hope and that we ought to present a testimony every single day that we do believe that we need to be ready when you come. Help us, Lord. Be with us in this time that we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.